You know, there can't be anything any better than thinking about heaven and thinking about home. Um, it's, it's, it's just an amazing thing to think about. Home is where the heart is. There's many uh, plaques up on walls in people's houses that say such as that. But, you know, I, I pray that our home is made in heaven where there is no more sorrow, no more death, no more pain. So today... If you would, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Philippians. It's a real skinny book. If you don't watch it, you'll miss it. Philippians chapter 3. I want to do a little bit of reading, just focusing on one verse. And that one verse, we're going to focus on the key word, one thing. I want us to make sure we realize that of, of the Christian life, we are to make sure of one thing. Okay? that we press on forward. That's Philippians, the book of Philippians, New Testament book of Philippians. If you go to Ephesians, it's between Ephesians and Colossians. One of Paul's letters. Philippians chapter 3, verse 13 says, Brethren, count it not, I count not myself to have apprehended it, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. Let's pray. Dear God, as we're here today, Lord, and looking at your word, Lord, let us always be mindful for that one thing that we continue to move forward for your kingdom. Lord, that our lives are continually looking towards that blessed hope that we have as believers in you. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to preach about today is one thing. And I know all y'all are thinking, I hope it don't take that long for the one thing. But, but only a few people can do more than one thing, guys. We're sort of, uh, we're sort of in that boat of, we're like in mono, mono sessions. I, I mean, I do one thing at a time, pretty decent. I stay focused. Women, on the other hand, are kind of like spaghetti. They have their fingers everywhere at one time. God, guys, we're not programmed that way. God did that on purpose. When, when, when your wife or your, your, when your spouse is running off on all those spaghetti trails, they go and you're in your little box and she hollers your name and you go, what? They don't realize it, ladies, but we have to actually jump out of that box we were in and then jump in the box that you're in in order to be there with you. But we try. But that's just the difference. Men are like waffles and women are like spaghetti. Never forget that. I mean, it's just you'll, you'll have a life a lot better if you do that. But the Bible tells us we're to have that one thing that we're always looking for. Paul said here that I have this one thing that I press towards the calling. Okay? It's a proven fact 
ladies, that you are multi-talented and multifaceted. Most guys are a, what is it called? I had it written down. What is it? Jack of all trades and a master of maybe one or none. That's mostly the guys. Girls are masters. Ladies are masters at multitasking and, and multi-talented. God made you that way. That's not nothing to be ashamed of. You are made that way by God. Us guys just have to learn that. But the mind, overall, even in the ladies' camp, can only truly focus on one thing when it comes to spirituality. We can either focus on God or we can focus on the world. That goes for either one of us. So from that standpoint, we're in the same camp. And we need to make sure that we, we understand what Paul said here at the church of Philippi, and he says that we are to have that one mind. With everything that happens in the past couple of years, it is very easy for any one of us to get sidetracked onto something on this world. Something happening around us. While we need to stay abreast of things that are going on, we're not to be ignorant of what's happening, our focus, our attention should stay ever pointing back towards heaven. I, I've, I, I told a lot of y'all coming in that, that wind hit this little thin suit I've got on, and I'm going, I'm glad I'm not outside today. I don't have the right clothes on. But we did. God was gracious for those year and a half we were outside that it was this cold easy out there. But what I'm getting at is we need to make sure the focus is on one thing. Our spiritual focus is set on Jesus. Now, depression is a bad thing. Depression and doubt is real. Do not get me wrong when I say this. But the Bible, if you just read that one in Philippians, he said, I'm not really dwelling on the past, no matter what it is. I'm pushing forward. Okay? Read it again. I'm going to read one more verse. This is 13 and then 14. Brethren, I count it not myself to have apprehended. In other words, haven't got it yet, but there's one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to those things which are ahead. I press forward to the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's our one thing we need to make sure we're, our overarching theme. And this is not going to sound unkind, but it's very helpful. The past is in the past. You can't go back and relive it. You can't go back and change it. Whatever it is in the past, whether it's sin, whether it's regret, whatever it is, Satan can use that in your life to cripple you and to make you useless for the kingdom. And he will because you're a Christian. Okay? Never forget that the past is just something you can't get out of. It's the past. So Paul says, I'm not looking back. I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward. Now, of, of people that had a wretched past, 
We all know the story of Paul to Saul. We know that Saul was a pretty wicked guy. Right? He was, he was highly educated. He knew the Bible. That's not the problem. But he was wretched, right? He wanted to stamp out Christianity, right? He was on the road to Damascus to, with papers in his hands to, to put to death some more Christians, right? When he had that encounter with God or with, with encounter with Jesus himself on the road to Damascus. So he said, what I find so interesting about this in Philippians, when he says that, he said, I'm not worried about that. But if you read the Acts, this is just off of, off of Kelder here, if you read the book of Acts, when he actually came in and joined the apostles, they were scared of him because of his past. So there's some, you know, newness of him there and not looking at the past anymore. Now, a lot of people do this, and, and, I, and I have mixed emotions about it, but if you read Philippians 3, you, th you go, really, people that have, like, like for instance, Paul, you, you really don't know what he used to do verbatim. You just have a high-level view. He said, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I was as smart as they come. I was a high-level high person in, the, in, the, in the, Judea, the, the mark of Judaism and all that. He knew his stuff, in other words. But we, as a society, like to get someone that had a very rough past saved, and they usually write a book. But what does the book usually have in it? Their past. And then maybe at the end, there, there's some couple of pages, maybe a whole chapter of, of how God has changed their life. That's not what the Bible says. We're supposed to move forward, not dwell on the past. Because one problem about the past is, A, you can't change it. Two, there may be some regret or some disheartment. Satan can use that to cripple you as a believer. He can also use that, if you were not a believer, to, to keep you in the drugs or the alcohol or whatever you're using for depression, right? Satan is good for that. So, I wish more people that had a, had a crazy past or a less than stellar past want, want to come in. I, I wish they would just expound on how good God is and how he changed them, but not necessarily glorify the past. Does that make sense? I think, I think we have a lot of that going on, and it's nothing but self-edification. But Paul didn't do that. 2 Corinthians 5.17 gives you the reason why. Paul told the church at Corinth, he says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, or woman, he is a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, all things are become new i hope and everybody here today feels renewed when you wake up as you press forward to the mark because again defeat and depression comes from dwelling on the past period that's what it is defeat and depression comes from dwelling on the past we can't relive yesterday over again. 
They hadn't made a movie about that a while back. I think he was in like a loop. He always, but anyway, we can't. And, and in real life, we can't do it. The Bible tells us that God has cast our, our sin in our life as far as the east is from the west. Right? As far as the east is from the west. So who are we to keep bringing it up if God has cast our past as far as the east is from the west if we're a child of God? So the Bible tells us that that is so, but yet we and Satan will just bring it up. Bring it up. Why? Because he wants to detour the believer from being effective in this life. So how does one overcome the past? Well, he told us in Philippians 3.13, the last part he says, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. And it says, Mr. Bizzle saying those things that Paul was referring to is the building of the kingdom and home, heaven. That's what he's thinking about. You know, in heaven, there's no COPD. In heaven, there's no asthma. There's no sinuses. There's no surgery being needed. There's no funeral homes. There's no nothing. Heaven is perfect. We should make sure that we're Truly heading towards heaven. So we must bury those past memories, that old life, that sin, make sure that we do that, repent of it, of course. But we're to make sure we do that. A little verse out of Hebrews, Hebrews eleven fifteen. Truly, if they had been mindful of that country whence they had came out of, they might have had the opportunity to return. Talking about Sarah and Adam. In, in the faith chapter in Hebrews. I'm going to give you just a verse, but you need to read some more in there in Hebrews 11 uh, later today to get the full text of that. But we must adopt the same policy. Think about it. God called Abraham and Sarah into a new life. So they left the old one behind. Okay, we need to practice that. Jesus told the disciples in Luke chapter 9, right at the very end, Jesus said unto them, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Okay? Need to read that, Luke 9. It's a race we're running. We must be focused on the goal or we're going to get tripped up. If Christians just hold on to this one thing, that we have heaven as our goal, and that's our focus, and, and our life is, is not, not a beeline to heaven. I mean, I can't say you just quit and go to a, mo a monastery and just, but I'm talking about your life overall, as you live your life, with heaven as your goal. Things, decisions you make will be different if you do that, okay? We have to overcome doubt. He answered, this is in John 9, 25. He answered and said, whether he be a sinner or not, talking about the blind man who was, was blind at birth and Jesus healed him. You want to read that story too? That's why I'm trying to consolidate this. I'm just picking a verse out of a story. 
So this is about the blind, the boy that was uh, born blind, and Jesus healed him. He said, he answered and said, talking to the religious leaders, whether he be a sinner or no, I do not know. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, and now I see. Think about it. We're, we're going to use this blind analogy as a, a form of, a, of salvation as well. Okay, what is the two factors that gives a man assurance of salvation? One, I was blind with the blind man talking about he was blind at birth. We're all blind to God at birth ourselves. We're spiritually blind. No one is born ready for the kingdom. We're born into sin. That's the fall of Adam. Okay, we're all we all fall sin is even though babies are so sweet, believe me, if you've had any that gets a little bit bigger, they, they, you'll see it. They, they need saving too. I mean, but they're all sweet anyway. But what did the blind man say? He, or the man said, he said, I don't know what happened, but I know I've never seen anything. I was blind, and now I see. That's the salvation experience. You don't know really how it happened. You were spiritually blind. But when you become saved, you could see. You saw things a different way. You read the Bible, it means something different to you. You saw things when you prayed. You, you sat around and heard certain songs and it moved you in a different way. I'm not blind anymore. All of a sudden now I see things differently. A person that has, has grown up outside of Christ and then been saved, a lot of times they will tell me, upon salvation, that things just look different. It's almost, I've been told this one time, which I thought was interesting, it's almost as if now everything's in color. And before it was kind of black and white. Okay? But I know that we first must have to admit or, or decide and realize that we are blind. Salvation only comes... When someone realizes they have a condition that they were born with, and it's called sin, and they can't fix it themselves. You can't save someone until they're actually lost first. One of the hardest things in the world, we, you get around a bunch of pastors years ago, and we would have meetings, we would talk about, the hardest thing about conversion is, is to first convince people they're lost. I said, well, you can't convince anybody they're lost. Believe me, I've tried for years. Not necessarily y'all, but, but through the years. I've tried to convince people of their error of their ways. And I'm going to tell you a little secret. Until the Holy Spirit opens their eyes where they can see their sin, they're happy and content right where they're at. Okay? So the two-factor two authentication for Christianity is, I was blind. He admitted his condition. A lost person must admit they're a sinner. And I know that's not politically correct in this context we live in, but we are all sinners saved by grace if you're saved. Otherwise, we're just still sinners. The second factor, but he, the blind man said, but now I see. He said, one, this one thing I knew, I couldn't see, but now I see. Same thing with a Christian. I was blind to the things of God. The the word meant nothing to me. Prayer was outside of my life, but now I see. I see God for some of his magnificent glory. I see the, the world around me, and I see it 
in a different light. I tell people all the time, you can't not believe that there's not something keeping this place going. And I'm not talking about the government, I'm talking about the world. You can't tell me that you're even halfway intelligent if you think all this stuff just happened by chance. Right? If this was a pile of chance, there's no reason tomorrow to be here because it just may not happen again, right? But if there's order and there's cohesion in the bringing up of the morning and the noon and the day and the night and the night and the day and the day and the night and the years, then there's order. There's order. So we must understand that there's something else involved besides just chance. You know, people a long time ago, back in the 70s and 80s, they, they had this idea that we uh, evolved. I've told you this many a times. Most of y'all know this by heart. My problem with being once evolved from a monkey is, is a couple of fold. One, there's still monkeys laying around, right? So all, the, so all of a sudden, the, the thing of us turning in from monkeys means two things. There should be no more monkeys, or there still should be monkeys turning into humans, neither one of which are still happening. That means that what they say in evolution was a one-time unrepeatable event. Sounds pretty high-fetched to me. And the problem with what actually finally shut down those, uh, that, those uh, evolution theorists was, was this one word and its origin. In other words, where did the monkeys come from? How did it begin? The Bible's plain. First couple of words in the Bible is, in the beginning, God. Right? So this one thing we must remember, that's what really salvation is. Understanding that we're lost and without God, we're in need of being saved because this world we live in has order, it has cohesiveness, it has repeatability. We set watches that are mechanical and electronic because of the repeatability of everything that we happen. All the stuff that we have is so re repeatable. If you study science whatsoever and you just look at, if, if you love the beach and you just go to the beach and you look at the tide tables, pull your app on your phone and say, well, it's going to be high tide here at whatever time. Have you ever thought about how that happens? Well, Google it when you get home. What controls the tides? They will tell you the moon's gravitational pull. Wow, how'd that work? How did they ever figure that out? How can that be chance? That the moon is in just the right orbit with Earth. That on a certain repeatable event, it would do what it does and the tides go in and the tides go out. If the moon was too far away, the ocean would just come in. And in, and in, and in, and in, and further and further and further and further. Right? But because of that gravi gravitational pull of the moon, it goes in and it goes out. Photosynthesis. I'm way off track here. I'm sorry. Photosynthesis is another one. Think about it. How do we breathe? Because of all this nice green stuff we have around here. Even this time of year, there's some green. What happens? We breathe out something, and the plants say, I like that. I'm going to 
breathe in, and I'm going to bring out something you can breathe. So how did that evolve? It didn't. It's planned. So we need to make sure we understand that this one thing I'm talking about is not something way out there. It is here. It is around us daily. And we need to make sure we're striving for that one thing. And that's what salvation's all about. Get in the mark. Staying on the mark. Moving forward. So again, sometimes people want to ask the questions about this. And this is what's in John 19, 9. He says, and they ask him saying, who is your son who they say was born blind and how he now does see? Talking about that man. So, in that story, he was born blind. Met Jesus, he could see. And, and many of the religious leaders associated things that happened to make him blind. In other words, sin. A lot of times they thought back then if you had a problem, it was because of sin in your life and things like that. But they wanted to question how could he see. Many religions like to associate certain happenings with salvation. Some of them like to do a chilling feeling. Some of them like to do tears. You can come down and, and, and pray a, 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 just a peck bucket full of tears. And, and, and people say, well, because that person prayed that peck bucket of tears, they come up just praying and, and, and spilling those and crying and all like that, that, that they're saved. Well, or the burden's lifted. But I, I got news for you. You have, you have had about as much experience as anything like that. But re, remember this, salvation is not a feeling. It's a fact. It's a fact. All, all the folks that, that want to be on the, the feeling end of, of, of religion, whatever happens when they're in their dumps, whatever happens when they're not on the mountain anymore, what do they do? Well, a lot of them have to come back and get saved again, they believe, because they're not on that mountaintop. What does the fact say? The God of the mountain is still the God in a valley. Things ain't changed because I'm in a valley. God's still God, and God's still good. That's the fact of salvation. salvation. Salvation will have emotions involved in it if you're truly saved. There will be a happier person. But it doesn't equate the one without the other. In other words, you can't be waiting on that feeling every time you turn around. And sometimes... Especially when the answer is no. You've got this prayer and the answer is no. What do you do? You fall back on that promise. Say, okay, God, you're still God. And I don't understand it. And I don't even like it. But you're still God. Okay? That one thing. It is trusting the finished work of the cross and accepting that payment on your account. That's what salvation really is. It's a finished work. Every Christian really must settle that one thing. My debt has been paid. It was paid over 2,000 years ago 
by Jesus on the cross. Doubt is one of the major reasons of Christian failure. Doubt. But you cannot read the Bible and get doubt. The Bible is replete with reassurance for the believer. No matter what you're going through. No matter what you're going to go through. God is still good all the time. Think about it. Doubt comes in two sources. You will have doubt before salvation because it's only because you can doubt your way out of this world once you figure out that there's a, a life that's everlasting and that you will live forever. You know, by the way, I've said this a bunch of times in Zoom meetings. You know, when we as families do that procreate thing, we have babies. And, and, and that's a gift of God. But God puts a soul in the baby. That's what God does to a baby. And that's the reason why we are humans and we do what we do is because of that soul. Okay? So from God, one of, one of the ways it gets doubt is, is, is from God in the form of sin. Before you can really be saved, you've got to pretty much doubt that you can get out on your own. That's the part of being saved. You've got to first, again, realize you're lost without him. But after that, it's all Satan. That's why it's so important for believers to understand the work and the life of a believer. It's not easy. Anybody that tells you, I got saved and it was the best thing to happen in my life has only been saved a few days. Because as life goes on, Satan just goes, hmm, hmm, hmm. And he will throw those darts at you. He will throw those darts in at you in, in the one dart may be of sickness. One dart may be of death. One dart may be of a job law. It's allowed to be anything he throws at you. Maybe just a job in general. Whatever it is, it is the author of confusion. That is not God. That is Satan. Make no, re make no regret. Okay? God is not the author of confusion. Settle this in your heart today. Billy Sunday said this one time a long time ago. If you know anything about Billy Sunday, he said, With Christ, you are saved. Without him, you're lost. It's that simple. With Christ. Do you have him? Are you saved? If not, you're lost. Hell is your home. Okay? So one thing that I was like is going back to that. This is now in Mark 10. Going to read two verses, 21 and 22. He said this. This is the, the rich young ruler. You'll know the story, but you want to go back and read it some more. But I'm going to bring a couple of verses out. When Jesus beheld him, he loved him and said unto him, This one thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatever thou hast, and give it to the poor. And thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. And he was sad at the saying, and went away grieved. The Bible says, for he had great possessions. Just as a side note, money is not sin in itself. It's the lust of money. This could very well 
apply to someone working a two two different jobs trying to to make all those little extra things they think they need at home the extra cottage at the beach or the one in the mountain or one in each place or what you don't have to be filthy rich to, to see the rich young ruler the application of that it is about the love of money it is not money okay I believe that if he'd agreed with him, I believe if the rich young ruler said, fine, I'll do it, I believe he couldn't have fathomed the wealth he was going to get. Okay? But he didn't. He loved his money more than he loved Jesus. But now, what is it about the rich young ruler? Just in case you don't know anything about him, you need to go back and read it. But it's all in Mark 10. But Jesus told him, he says, this one thing I have against you. And he told him to go sell it all. It was his love of money. So what was it, the rich young ruler? I, just, I got a bullet list of little five items here. He had, the Bible says he had great possessions. Nowadays, pretty much loaded. The Bible also said he was a good man. Make no mistake, this ain't, this ain't someone... That's terrible. This was a good man. He himself said he kept all the commandments. That's verse between 19 and 20. He said, I've kept the commandments since my youth. He said he feared God. He said he was moral. He said he was moral. Sounds like a pretty good person, don't it? Yet Jesus told him there was one thing missing. He says, one thing thou lackest, he said. People today don't understand that whatever they do have, they're missing that one thing apart from Jesus. They're missing Jesus. They feel empty. They feel a void. You used to talk about it years ago that there was like a God-shaped hole in every human being. And, and people spend their life trying to fill it with all kinds of different things before they come to the saving knowledge of grace. So our job as believers is to show them what a spirit-filled Christian, the way we walk, the way we talk, the things we do, not being perfect, but being humble and being looking towards God. The rich young ruler consider Jesus' command an impossibility. Again, it wasn't because he had to, to call up all his brokers to get rid of all of his money. It weren't the mechanics of getting rid of everything. It was the reason why he had it in the beginning with, because it was the love of the money. What it did for him. And make no mistake about it, the rich, rich young ruler for everything the Bible tells us is in hell today. Nothing ever changed. Last time you hear about him is when he went away sad because he had lots of money. Nothing's ever said about him again. He's not somehow okay in the end and got to heaven, no. If he never changed, he didn't make it. He was good, he was moral. He kept the commandments. He'd check off on any modern church as a deacon, probably. God said, you got to give up something. Go and sell all your stuff. 
to sell all that stuff that you're putting above me. And again, you don't have to be rich. This can be a man and a woman working a job and, 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 and not, not necessarily barely making what your necessities of life, but working all that and then more, more, more. Same problem. But that one thing kept him out of heaven. Think of the millions of people that are going to be in hell because of that one thing, their love of money over Jesus. And again, this rich lung ruler would be a church member of any church nowadays. It would not be that he wouldn't be a church member. So again, church membership doesn't equate salvation. At Briar Branch, you get a, a plot in the cemetery. That's, what it, that's about all. After that, mm -mm. salvation is a personal work of the Holy Spirit in the life of an unbeliever that makes him a believer. That's what salvation is. Okay? So I pray that nobody here is holding on to that one thing. He said one thing is, is needful. Now this one, this, this story I pulled out is Mary and Martha. Jesus had went over and had, was staying at Martha's house. And it was teaching. And, and Mary and Martha was actually fixing a meal, whatever the noonday or whatever the meal was. She was, she was fixing a meal. But, but Martha, no, Mary, Martha was cooking. Mary was the one that when Jesus came in and was teaching, she stopped what she was doing. She left the kitchen, so to speak, and she sat at Jesus' feet. I'm going to read you just one verse. Now, what it is, Martha is complaining. <laughs> she told Jesus, she said, you know, I need some help. Will you get Mary to come back up in here? But anyway, the one verse I want to concentrate on is, is this is Luke 10, verse 42. One thing is needful, Jesus said this, and Mary hath chosen a good part. And he said, which shall not be taken away from her. Okay? So, <laughs> Mary was doing what was important. Martha was hung up on what needed to be done. Okay? So many important things are being sacrificed on an altar of urgency. Got to do this. You hear it all the time. Got to do this. It's only for a little while. Got to do this. What's travel ball? Weekend. Every weekend. But it's just for a little while. Right? Too many things are being sacrificed at the altar of urgency. Got to do it. How do we get by this? The psalmist helps us very much. This is Psalm chapter 27, just one verse, verse 4. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that I will seek after him. 
that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. That's talking about here. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire of his temple. That's Psalm 27, verse 4. That's spiritual focus. Let me read it without stopping. One thing I have desired of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That, and that's spiritual focus right there. That's spirit, the psalmist summed it up really well. We tend to have this concept of we can always do it tomorrow. Right? Satan is, is the master of let's do that tomorrow. Or let's do that next month. Or we'll have time for that when you retire. Have you ever been pitched that by Satan? You don't need to do that right yet. You're still working. You got all this. You got kids. You'll do that later. Hmm? Think about it this way. Peter said this in 2 Peter 3.8. He says, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that a day is with the Lord a thousand years, and a thousand years is but a day. We're sacrificing things on the altar of urgency that in the scheme of things don't really matter don't really matter so Jesus in the story of Mary and Martha at Martha's house rebuked Martha and said that she was uh, really having a, a hard time saying Martha saying Mary you need to you need to help me Jesus get get, get Mary to come up and help me and, Mar and Jesus rebuked Martha because it was a spiritual situation he's not talking about the help for the for the meal Jesus told Martha, that Mary had chosen a good part. And as Mary had said at Jesus' feet, she heard the words she needed to hear at that time from Jesus. We don't know what was actually said. Let's face it. We all can't do it all. Believe me. So let's make sure we're doing what's most important. Certainly there's much serving to be done in the church, but we must make sure that we put God first in the remembrance of everything. So remember, physical will pass away. Spiritual abides forever. Okay? 2 Corinthians 4.18, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he said, while we look at things which are seen, but at the things, but we are not to look at things which are seen, let me get it right, but at things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal. I don't know about y'all, but I'm, I'm, I feel like this, this body has is, is got an expiration date. You know, we all do. We have expiration dates. So this is temporal. But the things which are not seen, those things of God, those things that are spiritual are forever. Your soul never dies. This body may waste away and get buried in Briar Branches Cemetery. But the soul never dies. 
So let's take charge of our lives, live them, ab live them abundantly, focus on what's important, and that will make a difference both now and for eternity. So find one thing in closing. Find one thing you can do for the Lord and do it faithfully. Read your Bible. Look for that one thing every day. And let's remember to keep the main thing the plain thing and the plain thing the main thing. For the glory of God, let's pray. Dear God, as we're here today, Lord, let us always be mindful that you are God, and above you there is no other. Lord, that we'll walk as children in obedience to that one truth. Lord, that we'll be those people that will draw others to you. That we walk, Lord, in newness of life, but in humility, knowing that it's not us, it's you living in us. And Lord, let us be your light, and we'll be forever grateful. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.